All right, so we'll just get into the, to the message. So um, when Craig was setting the roster for preaching and stuff, he had told me that I was going to be preaching like probably a couple of months ago. And I knew the exact message that I wanted to speak. And I was really excited about it. I knew what I was going to do. I had kind of prepped it, planned it, you know, knew what I was doing. And then all of a sudden he starts preaching the um, issue is worship, right? The two-part thing he did. And I'm like, what the heck, dude? That's like, you've taken the key scripture that I'm using, you've preached half my message, what am I supposed to do now, right? I was, I was really quite ticked, and I said, to him, I said to him, did you copy what I was gonna say? And he's like, no, I don't even remember what you were gonna speak on. Whatever, dude. So, but I actually still felt like, because I wanna kinda come at it at a slightly different way, and I wanna talk about the glory of God. So normally, of course, if you've been in my church for a while, you'll know that I break things down and I I expand on the scripture. But because Craig's kind of covered a lot of that, I'm just going to refer to it and not break it down to the same degree that I would normally. Um, So I want to talk, though, about the glory of God as a weapon. And now some of you are sitting there going, wait, what? And what I find really fascinating is that in, in... in the warfare chapter, in Ephesians chapter six, right, which is, everyone kind of knows it as the warfare one, is that God there lists all these weapons for our warfare. He also lists weapons for our defense, for armor that we're supposed to wear. But nowhere in that whole entire chapter does God actually list any weapons for himself. Like none. In fact, if you search through the whole of scripture, God does not at any stage talk about what weapons he has, what he uses to fight. And that's actually because it's God's glory that defeats all of his enemies. You see, the glory of God is the manifest presence of God. So what that means is that when God needs to win a battle, all he has to do is actually show up. There's a story in the book of John, chapter 17, and it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is there, and this is just before he's about to go to the cross. So he's there, he's he's praying, he's been, um, you know, uh, was it, um, drops of blood have been coming from his forehead as he's been preparing. And what's really interesting in verse five is he says this, he says, as part of his prayer, and he says, and now, O Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The story then goes on and it talks about how Judas, who was betraying him, comes with a whole lot of armed soldiers and they're there and they're trying to confront Jesus and they're looking for him and the whole thing's a little bit tense and aggressive and Jesus says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then this happens in verse, uh, John 18, verse 6. When he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? Did Jesus attack them? Did he throw some hands? Did he, um, you know, charge at them? He didn't do any of that. All he said was, I am he. And then the glory that is associated with Jesus came upon him. And in that moment, his enemies fell. See, when Jesus returns, he is going to destroy all of his enemies. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
The brightness refers to his glory. In fact, it says in Habakkuk 3 and 4, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. There's this really fascinating passage of scripture in Exodus 33, and it's quite long, so I'm not gonna read the whole thing. But in this, Moses comes to God. You see, the glory of God was sitting on Mount Sinai and it looked like fire, it looked like flames from a distance. That's what it looked like. It looked like the whole mountain was on fire when God was on Mount Sinai. What was interesting was Moses comes to God and he says, God, I wanna see your glory. Like he wanted to have that intimate knowledge of God. And God says to him, no man can see my glory and live. Like it's not possible, you can't do that. But what I can do, because you know, God wanted to, to kind of grant this request to Moses, he said, what I can do is, is if you were to hide in this kind of, kind of hollowed out cleft in the rock, and then if I put my hand over you to protect you, and then I'll walk past and you can see the afterglow of my glory. Right? So you're not gonna see the actual glory, you'll see the afterglow of my glory. And so that's what happens, right? So Moses does that, God hides him, and then, he, and then God walks past, and Moses is able to catch the afterglow of his glory. The interesting thing about this is that the afterglow of the glory of God was so powerful that when Moses came down off the mountain, his face shone so brightly that he had to wear a veil because everyone who looked upon him was being blinded by what they'd seen. This is the amazing thing about God's glory. You see, God's glory is so powerful that his enemies cannot stand in front of it. You and I have to come to an understanding that our only source of victory is God's glory. We don't have multiple options for victory. We have one. It is the glory of God. Oh, but Trin, what about the Word of God? Without God's glory and anointing and empowering, the Bible is actually just any other book. Oh, but, you know, the name of Jesus, that's our source of victory. The name of Jesus, when we speak the name of Jesus, we invoke his presence. His presence comes and his presence carries the glory. Because remember, the glory is the manifest presence of God. Jesus, right from the start, taught us the solution to every single problem that this world is facing. And it comes down to one specific thing. If you want to see victory in this world over everything that's going on, it's found in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is how we obtain victory in this, in this world. We need God's kingdom to be established here on earth. The reason for that is that God is actually a monarch. God is a king. And we need the king to be here. Kings only dwell in their own kingdom, right? Kings don't dwell in somebody else's kingdom, kings dwell in their own kingdom. So for us to obtain and to have victory, we need the glory of God. For the glory of God to be there, we need to have God as king. We need God's presence. So the obvious need for us, if you want victory in your life, is to have that place established in your life as the kingdom of God. We want His kingdom to be established everywhere that I need victory. A definition of kingdom is a kingdom is any place where the king's authority is obeyed without question 
and without hesitation. In a kingdom, only one person votes. In a kingdom, the king votes. That's how you know who the king is. The person who does the voting is the king. When the world was in a chaotic mess, right at the start of, start of the world's beginning, it was actually the glory of God that actually brought order out of that chaos. In Genesis 1, 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, God's glory brought order into what we now have as the world. And then when God had finished creating it, His glory stayed upon the earth. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created in the glory of God. They lived in the glory of God. They dwelt in the glory of God. And you've got to think about this. That's why, because of the glory of God, defeats all the enemies that God has. What happens is when you live in the glory of God, there was no earthquakes. There were no tornadoes. There were no hurricanes. There was no famine or pestilence. There was no murder or violence or rape or incest or drug addiction or alcoholism. There was none of that because those things could not abide in the presence of God, in the glory of God. So when God created Adam and Eve, what he did was he took Adam and he says to Adam, I'm going to make you king of this earth. See, God was the king of the earth. And then he says to Adam, I'm going to make you king of the earth. I'm going to give you dominion. You can have dominion over the earth and everything within it. Now, this is actually okay because at that time, Adam and Eve were submitted to God. And so therefore, God still was the, the ruling king. He made earth God's kingdom. That's why it says, you know, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? Because we are kings of our own world and we submit ourselves to God because he is the king of kings. So when we think about that, if you take that thought of, okay, so nothing can come into, into the earth because of God's glory, because it defeated all his enemies. How come, then, how come then Satan was allowed to be a serpent and come in and, and confront Adam and Eve? That's kind of an interesting question. They weren't allowed to come in and harm Adam and Eve. The serpent was allowed to come in and have a conversation with Adam and Eve. And the reason why God did that is that he wants us to have a choice. He wants us to choose to serve Him. He doesn't want us to be robots who are commanded to serve Him. He doesn't want us to just um, honour and love Him because we are told we have to. He wants us to choose Him. So for us to be able to choose God, He has to give us a choice. So for Adam and Eve to choose to serve God and to be submitted to God, He had to give them a choice. And that's, what the, that's why He allowed the serpent to come in, to have that conversation. Now, the Satan comes in and he has this conversation with Adam and Eve. What's really interesting is that it actually wasn't about Adam and Eve. He, he wasn't after Adam and Eve's souls. He wanted access to the earth. He wanted access to the kingdom. Satan knew that he had to get rid of God's glory. And the only way to achieve that was to crown a new king. Satan needed Adam to vote. You see, Satan wants access to your kingdom. Satan wants access to your world, to your life. You see, Satan actually isn't afraid of Christians. He's afraid of submitted Christians. In fact, to be perfectly honest, he's actually not even afraid of that. What he's, what he's afraid of is the glory of God. 
And the only people who carry the glory of God are those who are submitted. If you are submitted to God and God is the king of your life, then you live a submitted life and the glory of God lives within you. If you are a Christian who doesn't live a submitted life, then you actually have no concern. You're no worry because you don't carry the glory of God. And I know that's kind of blunt, but we live in a world where we need to be blunt. Now, what happens, of course, in this story is that the serpent comes along to Eve and he says to Eve, you know what? I see you have great leadership potential. And Eve is like, yes, I receive that. I do have great leadership potential. And then, and then the serpent says to Eve, you know what? I think you could probably run, run, the, run the world, run the garden much better than it's currently been done. And, and Eve's like, you know what? You're actually really perceptive. I, I, I am smart. I am clever. I can do this. And then he says to Eve, you know what, Eve, you should be king. In actual fact, that's not, what he's, not quite how he words it. What he says in Genesis 3, 5 is he says, and you will be like God. And we know what happens. We know that they succumb and they, they break the rules and they eat the fruit that they shouldn't have done. And in the moment that they do that, the Bible says that Adam and Eve felt naked. I always wondered about that. Like, they were naked before, right? Why, how, how is eating a piece of fruit suddenly make you feel naked? Because I've eaten pieces of fruit and I still, I don't feel naked. Like, how does this work, right? What kind of fruit was this? But what it was is that they had been clothed in the glory of God. They lived in the glory of God. They had been clothed in the glory of God. And I think there's two reasons why they suddenly felt naked. One is, all of a sudden, they voted, so God was no longer king, which meant that he, he couldn't live there anymore because kings live in their kingdom, and that's no longer his kingdom, so God just moved out, which meant he took his glory with him. The second reason is that God had created us for fellowship. He created us to be in relationship with him, intimate, close relationship, and he knew that his glory was going to destroy Adam and Eve, so he couldn't stay. So to save them, he, he had to leave. He had to start loving man from a distance. And that was never God's intention. He didn't want to love us from a distance. He wants a close, personal, intimate relationship. So how does he fix this dilemma? Thankfully, he's God and he knew what to do, right? So, and we're going to come and talk about um, in Exodus chapter 25. This is where Moses has been building the ark. And um, the ark represents the glory of God. And it says in verse 22, And there I, being God, will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. You see, since God could not separate himself from his glory, because the glory is the manifest presence of God and he couldn't separate himself from that, what he did was he coupled his glory with mercy. You see, he coupled his glory with mercy. The cherubim represented God's glory and they sat above the mercy seat. The only thing that protects man from being destroyed by God's glory is God's mercy. That's it. That's the only thing that protects us. What's interesting, of course, is that inside the ark, you have the law, you have the Ten Commandments, which have been broken by man. But for God now, when he had to look upon the law, he has to look through mercy. I think that's really important that we remember that God looks at us coupled with his mercy. 
What's interesting is if you could go back in time to them, to those days, and you say to one of those Israelites, where will I find God? Where can I find God? He's going to say to you something along these lines. Go down this row of tents, then go right. After you've gone right for about four different tents, you then need to, to look to your left. And on your left, you're going to see this giant tabernacle. Now, that's where you need to head. Head towards the tabernacle. When you get to the tabernacle, there's going to be this um, outside part. You walk through that. That's called the outer courts. God's actually not there. You need to keep going. So when you keep going, you're going to come to what is called the, the inner court. And that's fine. Go into the inner court. But then you're going to come to this massive veil that's dropped down. Don't go past the veil. Whatever you do, do not go past the veil. But past the veil, you're going to find a gold box. And inside the gold box, that is where you're going to find God. The interesting thing is that they, in those days, they could only meet with God once a year on the Day of Atonement. A priest would come along and he would have cleansed himself and done some rituals. And then what they did is they'd tie a rope around his leg. They had bowels on his garment. And he would, one day a year, go in past that veil into the Holy of Holies to where God himself was residing. And while he was in there, he would do all the, the, the ceremonial bits. But if his heart was not right, if he had not followed the purification properly, if he was not cleansed, the glory of God that was in there would completely kill him. And then that's why they had the ropes, so that if they stopped hearing the bells ringing, they could drag him out. I kind of think about that one. I think, when did they realize they needed the rope? Like, somebody had to have gone in there and died, and then they're going, oh no, we can't get the body out. Like, that's, well, I mean, that's how I think, right? That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking they've got this dead body that's just rotting, and they can't get it out. Anyway, obviously I watch too much TV. Um, so this is what, what would happen. The difference for us is that the reason why their ceremonial things didn't quite always work, even though the, the priests would have followed protocol, is because they were using this, the blood of a lamb. We have the blood of the lamb. We have the blood of Jesus sprinkled on our hearts. So we can boldly come into God's throne room without fear, without worry, because he's coupled himself um, to his mercy. Now, as long as the Israelites had this ark, as long as they had the glory of God, they won every battle that they fought. They won every battle that they fought. Unfortunately, though, what happens is that we start to critique. You know, when we're winning, have you ever noticed that when your world is going really well and you're on top of the world and everything seems to be going really well, that we start to critique God's management policies. We start to scrutinize what God's been saying to us. And sometimes we have this attitude that actually, I think I can run this part of my life better. So we start to vote in that particular area. The world calls that self-empowerment. God actually calls it rebellion. And what happens is we slowly begin to make ourselves king of different parts of the world. And this is what the Israelites did. As time went on, they started to make themselves rulers of different areas in their thing. And even though they had God who had been this amazing king, because he had never once abused them, he had always provided for them, they were never without anything, there was no lack, in fact, they were living in prosperity, they had decided that they could actually run the kingdom themselves. And then they came to God and they said to God, actually, we don't really need you. We've looked over all your policies. We think we can do it better. We'd like for you to give us a king. How insulting is that? 
So God says, you know what? Fine, I'm gonna give you a king. You can have King Self, I mean King Saul. And so he set them up with King Saul and, and Saul becomes king. However, prior to Saul becoming king, the Israelites had actually lost the ark. Somewhere along the way, in some of their battles, they had actually lost the ark. I think really what happened was the glory of God had departed. And they're in the middle of this battle one day, and they were starting to lose. Now, you've got to understand, they had never lost. The Israelites had not lost, right? So, so they didn't know how to lose. If, you, if you're always winning, you don't always cope well when you're losing, right? We see how New Zealand reacts when the All Blacks lose. It's the same scenario. So they didn't know how to lose. And so what happened was they start panicking. And they say, where's God's box? Where's the box, right? So they start looking for the box. And they had this conversation. Now, this is probably not quite how the conversation went, but it'll be something along the lines of, we need God's box. Well, where's the box? I need, it's in the, you know, it's behind the curtain. We need to go get the curtain. We need to go and get it. So they're going to gather up a whole bunch of guys and they go marching in there and they grab a hold of the box and they come charging out. What's really interesting, if you read that passage, they broke 28 laws to go in and get the ark and no one dies, right? No one dies? Why did no one die? Because what they got was just an ark just a box. God's glory was no longer in that box. God left. When they, had re- when they had decided that they wanted somebody else to be king, when they had started voting, when they had started making their decisions the right decisions, God just left because he's no longer king. So I'm out and my rule and his rules that he instituted don't stand anymore. The laws of the previous king don't stand. So what they had was this box that yeah, and it still had the Ten Commandments. And some people take comfort in the fact that there are laws and regulations. Thing is, laws and regulations don't save us. It's only God that saves us. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel 5 and 6, you got this story. I'm just going to kind of condense it down. So they lost, right? They lost, they lost that battle that they were trying to fight. And the Philistines took the ark. And they took it to the city of Ashdod and they set it up in the temple of Dagon, their false god. When they came back the next day, Dagon had fallen over, right? And they were like, well, this is a bit weird. Why did this happen? So they set him back up. Now, I think the reason why he fell over is that somewhere on the journey of leaving Israel and the Philistines taking the ark, I think God's glory rejoined the ark. I think he turned back up. They set Dagon upright, leaving this false god in the presence of of the ark and presence of the true God. The next morning they come back in and Dagon's fallen over again, but this time his head and his hands are broken off, right? And then God sends a plague of tumors into the city of Ashdod. So Ashdod was like, well, we don't want to keep this ark. So they sent the ark to the city of Gath. And then that city was also plagued with tumors. Then they sent it to Ekron. And then that city was in a panic, right? And many people died. And those who didn't die were severely affected by tumors. So after the Philistines having this ark for seven months, they were like, yeah, we've had enough of this. So they set it on a new cart, hitched it to two cows, and they sent it back to Israel. When the people of Beth Shemesh saw the ark, they stopped harvesting their wheat and they rejoiced. And then they took the, and it says in uh, chapter 6, verse 14, that the people chopped up the wood of the ark and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. You would think that that would be great. You think that that's the right thing to do, right? Let's give God a burnt offering. But then, for some unknown reason, they become curious. And they open the ark to look inside. 
Now you've got to remember that the lid of the ark is the mercy seat. And that God looks upon the law that man has broken, but he looks through mercy. So he sees the mercy first. Now to look inside the ark, they actually separated God's mercy from his glory. And at that moment, after being exposed to God's glory without mercy, they all died. And when this happened, the rest of the people took the ark and they gave it to Abinadab. And as Craig talked before, his son Eleazar was consecrated to look after the ark. Now the ark remained there for 20 years. Now during this time, Israel continued to serve false gods and as a consequence, they eventually asked God to give them a king over them. I think what's really sad is the whole time that Saul was king, he never once asked for the ark back. He never once brought it back to where it should be. But isn't that like self? When self is king, we go through the motions, but we don't really want God to be back on the throne. So we just pretend that we do. We talk about it, but we don't actually make those right actions. In Samuel 1.15, just to paraphrase, God tells Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, every single one. Man, woman, children, all the livestock, everything has to be completely slaughtered. There is a reason why he does that. There's a whole other message that we can get into later. So he tells him to kill everything. And Saul makes an executive decision. This is why we know Saul was king and God was not, because only kings make executive decisions, right? And he made the decision to keep the livestock alive. He slaughtered all the people, but he kept the livestock. Now, I'm sure that every single animal rights activist was celebrating with Saul with what he did, and the vegans were probably really, really happy. But the problem is, is that that was not what he was told to do. And the prophet Samuel comes and he says, Saul, have you obeyed the word of the Lord? And Saul says, yep, absolutely, I'm 100% submitted to God. And then Samuel says to him, why can I hear the bleating of sheep? And then you got to give Saul credit because he thinks pretty fast on his feet. And he says, lying completely, he says, I was actually going to do this massive offering to God, going to you know, do this big offering thing. And we know it's a lie because if that was the truth, he would have done it on the battlefield. To be honest, he was probably going to have a big barbecue and his wife was at home making the potato salad. Now, Samuel's next statement to Saul is a kingdom principle. And if you get nothing out of today, this, you need to get this. So you really need to listen to this. The kingdom principle is this. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Why is obedience better than sacrifice? Because a sacrifice does not characterize a kingdom. Only obedience does. That's why tithing is greater than fasting. Fasting is a sacrifice, but tithing is obedience. And then later on, he gets, Saul gets removed because of his disobedience to God, and God then puts in a king of, that's after his own heart, and he gives them King David. Now, King David's first official statement as king is in 1 Chronicles 13, 3, and he says, And let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we have not inquired of it since the days of Saul. In fact, King David said that he would not rest until he had brought the ark back. He says it in Psalms 132, verse 3, Surely I will not go into my chamber of my house, or you go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. 
So we have here two kings. We have Saul and we have David. One was, was listed as a man after God's own heart and the other one is a man who did not go after the ark. What's really interesting, if you look deeper, is that one of these men is guilty of murder and adultery. He broke two of the Ten Commandments. And the other king just refused to kill some animals. Right? How can an adulterous murderer be known as a man after God's own heart? And how can the man who wanted to save animals be known as a lost cause? When David was confronted with his sin... He readily admitted, I am that man. He submitted himself to God. He was humble. He was repentant. When Saul was confronted, he completely denied any wrongdoing that he did. We all have moments of failure. We all have times when we have rebelled against what God's authority. We all have moments where we vote. The key to survival for you and for me is when we are confronted with our sin is to be quick to submit. See, in God's eyes, Saul's attitude and stubbornness and self-righteousness was seen to be worse than David's sin of adultery and murder. The story continues, and we're quite familiar with this part, in 1 Chronicles 13. David's assembled the Israelites. They proceed to the house of Binadab, where the ark has been kept for the last 20 years. They put the ark on a new cart pulled by oxen, now, you've got to understand, they were actually thrilled to see the ark come home. They, this was at a monumental time in their history. They were excited about it. Everyone was celebrating with music and instruments, and there was a party atmosphere. And then they come to the fleshing for it, Chidon, and the, the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah puts his hand out to, to stop the ark from falling. And, of course, immediately he's killed. Abinadab had more than one son. His other son was Uzzah. thing is... He grew up in the house with the ark. So to Uzzah, it was probably kind of like a coffee table, right? The ark's been in his house his whole life. He viewed it as a coffee table or a credenza. It was just a piece of furniture. I think what happens sometimes with Christians who are brought up in the church, who have been familiar with the things of God or the move of God or the spirit moving, is that you begin to think of these things as common and we don't give them the reverence and the respect that they deserve. So what happens is, is that Uzzah, which means strength or strength of man, as the ark is falling, puts his hand out to stop it because his arrogance believes that his strength can handle the glory of God. Watch me salvage God's glory. See, David stops the procession after Uzzah dies and he returns home. They leave the ark with Obed-Edom and there it stayed for three months. And as Craig shared uh, the last couple of weeks, Obed-Edom's house was blessed for the three months that it was there, so much so that he then followed the ark. See, I believe that God is wanting to do again what happened with King David. I believe that God is wanting to see his glory restored to the earth. I, I believe he's wanting to see it come back. See, Jesus prayed a prayer, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that prayer has not yet been answered. The reason why I say that is because if you look around, we can tell that God is not king of this earth. We can see where we're all being voting and how terrible things are. See, Jesus wants God's kingship to be established on the earth. You see, if God is king, it then follows that his will will be done. Because that's what happens in a kingdom, right? 
The mistake that we have made when teaching about establishing of God's kingdom is that we keep focusing on the physical aspects. We make the assumption that we have to concern ourselves with making sure that the physical things that we own or the physical things that we do are a part of God's kingdom, when it's actually the spiritual part. You need God to be king of your life. And it follows that if God is king of your life, that everything else becomes his at the same time. Your house becomes his, your land becomes his, your money is his. Everything else falls into place. First Chronicles 15, David realizes the mistake that he made. And so he goes forward and says, we, we did inquire of God as to how to bring the ark home. And so instead what we did was we placed it on a cart with oxen. Where did they get that idea from? From the Philistines, because that's what they had done. And David said, because the Levites did not bring up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us, we did not inquire of him how to do it in the prescribed way. God created man for fellowship and God wants his glory to rest upon his priests on the Levites. Who are his priests today? 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God wants his glory to rest upon us. We are the priests today. We are the ones who carry his glory today. We are the ones he will move upon us as we walk through this earth. David then told the priests to sanctify themselves and they brought the ark back to Jerusalem. Basically, he was telling them, make sure that you're fully submitted to God, right? Make sure your hearts are right before God so that the glory, so that the ark could rest upon their shoulders. David went to great lengths to prepare his musicians and his singers so that they could offer up praise as the glory was being restored to Israel. When the ark was returned to Jerusalem, it was not put back in its original place. See, 20 years before, the ark was taken from the tabernacle of Moses and it sat upon Mount Gibeon. It was now brought to Mount Zion, where David had prepared a new tabernacle. What's interesting is that the tabernacle that David had was a tent. It was temporary. It was a movable dwelling place. And in 2 Peter 1, 13 to 14, Peter tells us that our body is a tabernacle. We are a tent. We are a movable dwelling place that God wants his glory to rest upon. Why? So we can carry his glory. Maddie, can I just have you up on the keyboard, please? I just want to end on something. The glory of God is so vitally important to us as Christians because it tells everybody who we follow. The manifest presence of God needs to be shown through your life. Because if it's not shown through your life, then are you actually submitted? Because remember right at the start, I said that God, the King, only dwells in His kingdom. If, God, if you're not manifesting the glory of God, the presence of God in your life, then you're not living in His kingdom. You're not submitted to His kingdom. In Joshua chapter 3, the nation of Israel is on the banks of the River Jordan, and they're waiting to cross over into the Promised Land. And in verse 3, it says, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Then you shall set out from your place and go after it. I think this is God's plan for church growth. We spend so much of our time worrying about programs and worrying about activities that we forget the real issue, which is the glory of God. 
When people see the ark, when people see God's glory, they will remove from their place and go after it. We need to ask ourselves, are people seeing the glory of God when they see us? When one alcoholic sees another alcoholic who has now living in the glory of God has been completely healed, you won't have to beg them to come to church. They'll follow the glory. When the drug addict or the married couple on the verge of divorce or the person bound by depression or the atheist or the agnostic see the glory of God, they will go after it. We need to focus our energy and attention on restoring God's kingdom. Thy glory, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for it is, the God, for it is God who commanded light to shine in the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of God may be of God and not of us. See, God revealed His glory in Jesus' face. What was it about Moses when he came down off the mountain that was different from experiencing God's glory? It was his face, right? His face shone with the glory of God. When Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, there's a young man standing there watching. His name was Saul. And he held the coats of those people who were stoning Stephen to death. Basically, he assisted in Stephen's uh, slaughter. He would today be called an accessory to murder. While viewing the execution of this martyr, Saul becomes so troubled by what he saw. And that afterwards, he actually went on this rampage persecuting every single person who believed in the Jesus that Stephen preached. I believe that what he saw in Stephen's, uh, uh, Stephen haunted him until he surrendered and accepted Jesus as a saviour. Later, he became the Apostle Paul who wrote more than half the New Testament. What did he see? I believe he saw the glory of God on Stephen's face. And eventually he removed from his place and went after it. God is restoring the tabernacle of David. And as you and I make him king of our lives, Jesus' prayer is being answered. His kingdom is coming to earth through us. Let his glory rest upon you. Let it shine on your face so that everybody else will remove from their place and go off, go after it. It's not so much about what you say. And it's not so much about what you do. It's that if you live in your life submitted to God, His kingdom will be established in your life and His glory will be living in your life and that's what people will see. And people will come and they will ask you, what is that? And they will hunger for what you have. I don't want to have a, have a moment... I kind of wrestled with this a bit. I was like, I could say to everybody, hey, put your hand up if you want the glory of God in your life. And everyone's going to put their hand up. It's actually not that easy. Because for you to have the glory of God displayed in your life means you actually have to submit. It means for some of us, probably a lot of us, we're going to have to actually humbly remove ourselves from the throne and invite God back onto the throne, if we're going to be honest. So I want us to stand. And I'd like you to close your eyes and bow your head. Because this is a conversation that you can only have with God. Because I can't do this one for you. 
So I want you to take a moment. Holy Spirit, come. Show us where we are, King. Show us where we have voted. Father, I pray for each person here that this week that they would take that moment where you have highlighted for them where they have made themselves king, where you have highlighted for them where they have voted, where they are not submitted to you, God. Lord, I pray that this week that they would take a moment and they would begin that process of humbly removing themselves from the throne, that they would take a moment to repent, to ask forgiveness, to confess. And God, that no matter how scary it might be for some, no matter how fearful they might be about taking that move, God, that they would submit control completely to You. I pray, God, that You would give them courage. I pray, God, that You would give them a boldness. I pray, God, that as they give you the glory and as they give you kingship of their life, God, that your provision would overflow. God, that your health would overflow, that your finances would overflow. God, that everything that they're worried about, God, that you would just meet that need and overflow with your provision and your love and your grace and your mercy. And I pray, God, that we will be a church full of people who are submitted. Because if we're a church full of people who are submitted, we're a church who carry the kingdom of God. And we will carry that into this community and we'll carry this into our workplaces and into our homes. And God, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. So like I said, this is something that you can, only you can do. I can't do this for you. So this week, make time. Be intentional. Make time and have that conversation with God. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you need to submit to God and where you need to humbly give way to the Father. And I promise you, it'll be the greatest thing you've ever done. It'll be the greatest life you've ever lived, living a life fully submitted to God rather than one foot in and one foot out. If you go all in, your whole entire life will change, not just yours, but your family's life and the generations to come and the community that you live in. And that's what I want. And I want this... If we had a church full of people who live like that, imagine what we could do to our community. Imagine the glory of God that would just fall upon, upon Pukekohe as a whole. We would have people flocking to come and talk to you and they'll look at you and they'll see the glory of God and they're gonna remove themselves and chase after it. That's what we want, amen? Awesome, have an awesome week. Enjoy the rest of this last week of the school holidays. Grab a um, Christmas box if you haven't done that yet. Um, otherwise, stick around, grab something from the cafe, say hello to someone, have a conversation, it'll be awesome.